talk tonight is about coming home to ourselves. And uh, it's sort of a, an acknowledgement, a reminder, a review of the places that we are and that we've been in our practice. I remember long ago, <coughs> maybe not that long ago, almost 30 years now, when I first met Manindraji and I asked him, well, he asked me, what are you doing on this path? What, what is it that you want out of this path? One way or another, he asked me that. And I remember replying in this way, I want to know God, because that was the only way I knew at that time how to express what my aim was, what my aspiration was. And so I just remember the very place and the way he responded with such sweetness and clarity from the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall know God. And so that became a very clear aspiration for me when I heard that, because it wove into my own Christian background at that time. That's what became most important, to purify the heart, the mind, of all those forces that make one feel not so clear, not so clean, not so pure. And to have a sense of myself being more at home with myself, there was always this sense that I didn't feel comfortable with who I am, who I was. I didn't feel at home being in this body, in this mind, always forces coming and going that made me feel distressed, not really happy with who I was. And so there was a clear sense of that aspiration too, coming to be more at home with myself, coming to see that it's possible to rest in that place of purity, of greed, from greed, hatred, and delusion, which is, I think, as we come to discover on our journeys that that is our true home, that place where we can be free from that, even for a moment, that it's there. It's not really some place different from where we already are. It's an ongoing deepening, establishing that purity. Some people can establish that quickly. And for many of us, myself included, it takes time and it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of correct aim in our practice, knowing exactly what our aspiration is and where we're going. I asked Munindra several times after that, is it truly possible, is it truly possible, this kind of freedom from confusion, from the mind and heart and body that is constantly caught up chasing after or running away from whatever is happening in the present moment, either outside of oneself or within oneself. A mind and heart that doesn't know what is wise, 
a mind and heart that is always just acting out of conditioning. And Manindra would say over and over again, it's possible, it's possible to reside in this place, he said, is better than being a monarch of all the world. And he told me at that time many years ago of Deepama, the wonderful stories that we've all heard here, and there's a book out on Deepama that you'll, if you haven't um, seen yet, you will very soon. Incredible stories of this simple housewife, mother, householder. And so it set in my mind that it's truly possible. If this person could do it, then I have that potential too, like all of you. In the last period of renunciation, taking refuge was an extraordinary experience for me, extraordinary compared to other experiences for me of taking refuge. I feel I have a lot of faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, But this time in this country that I was in, surrounded by people who are of the Buddhist faith and who sort of have it in their blood, it goes back through their ancestors over a thousand years more. And so were these teachings are so um, embedded in everybody's heart. I felt such a deep surrendering to the Dharma in a way that I never felt before. I felt a devotion, not outwards to all the Buddha rupas, the statues that were there in the pictures, so much as a devotion to a recognition of that potential within my own heart, a devotion to that aspiration to clean my heart, a devotion to a commitment of spiritual responsibility. And I think we each one of us have that devotion that commitment in our own way. Fulfilling one's potential to purify, to establish that unshakable deliverance of mind and heart. That is the reason for this devotion. That is the reason for this life. That is the reason for this practice. And not to keep it to ourselves so that as we understand life with more wisdom as we go along, we share that with the world. We help. We do what we can. So like you, we all have embarked upon our unique spiritual journeys, our inner journeys. And we go along the path guided by mindfulness, fulfilling our very unique individual commitments to our spiritual aspiration. And that journey is not really taking us so much away to a different place, to some place far away from where we already are, but it's taking us really to our true home, deep within us, within this very place, this very mind and body. 
with the help of mindfulness as our guide, that ever-revealing present moment comes into clearer and clearer focus, clearer and clearer perception, revealing in ever-deepening ways and ever-clarifying ways experiential understandings about the true nature of life. What keeps this mind churning? What keeps this life turning towards construction of complexity, towards misperception, towards suffering? We see that not because we read it or hear it here in the Dharma talks, but we see it in our own experience. And this is invaluable information to us because it's so direct. Nothing comes between that information and the understanding of it. So we learn to relinquish that which turns towards misperception, towards suffering. We also learn along the way through our direct experience, mindfulness reveals what unchurns it, what begins to slow down the mind and heart and body to the place where it can really just all stop. And perhaps there's a chance for freedom, revealing that clearer, wiser perception that aims towards the end of suffering, the complete end of suffering. So mindfulness brings the experience of the present moment to us, even though it's not easy to be with. Somehow, even though it's not easy to be with, we know ourselves more completely, and we know ourselves in a new way. It's exciting, even though it's hard. It's fulfilling in a kind of odd way when we can get really close to what's happening inside, how this mind-heart works. T.S. Eliot says these often quoted words, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know it for the first time. So many strengths and beautiful qualities are developed in order to be able to do this, in order to be able to come to that place within ourselves for what seems like a new first time and see it with new eyes, almost, with the eyes of wisdom. To be able to go deep into the interior of the layers of our hearts, layer upon layer, through all the really hard-to-be-with conditioning. In this last period of practice, that I had, there were some really painful memories that came up, memories of the near past and of the distant past, memories of a place that's really most vulnerable for me in this life. Um, Sometimes we call this place a karmic knot. And so there is this revealing of this place in uh, all the strands of this so-called karmic knot in a torturous way that I never uh, faced that depthfully before. It has to do 
with that old place of rejection and abandonment for these are my old wounds of this life and probably other lives too. Well, it started to unravel and there was this great willingness for it to unravel, not in a way that I would just go nuts, but in a way that I could keep it together and observe the unraveling, the unfurling, the uncoiling of this place, and to let whatever was held in that to be freed. I needed to be able to let it disentangle itself, to not get in the way, to be able to get to the hollow core of it. But in order to do that, it was as if I had to be with every strand of that knot unraveling itself, every sort of memory about the subject presented itself with a very visceral experience of whenever that memory was, uh, whenever that happened in the past, whatever I felt before was felt again. And perhaps not even in the same way, maybe in a more alert way, in a way that I could experience it and have a chance to experience it with more wisdom, to bring the light of wisdom to it. It was hard to get really close. There were times when I couldn't wait for the bell to ring. There were times when I moved from my walking spot over and over and over again, trying to find another spot, trying to run away from those torturous feelings. It was really hard to get close to, and there were many times when I said to myself, I've done this work already. Why do I have to do it again? But there was a kind of voice that called up inside of me, a kind of knowing that said, it's giving you another chance to experience it in a new way, not in the ways of delusion and not seeing clearly and not really letting go deeply, but in a way that allowed me to let go from a place of not taking it so personally. I felt lost at times. It was so unfamiliar. I thought this terrain was going to be okay to be with, but it wasn't that okay. Every time it came up, I had to remind myself, here is another chance to see it with deeper and deeper wisdom, in the light of wisdom, so that eventually every single strand could come out of the realm of it's me, it's mine, it's myself, could come out of the realm of it's so personal, and into the realm of being universal, into a bigger space. They could just be like bubbles of experience. It took a tremendous moment-to-moment effort to do this, to be really present, to go deeper into that experience where it could be realized in the light of wisdom and to know this inner world with a kind of easefulness instead of fear, instead of recoiling back. I found a poem by William Stafford 
about this. And I liked it a lot because it reminded me about our little forest behind here. Not so little, really, but um, times when I've gone into the forest when it's been really painful. And not when it, only when it's been painful, but just times when it's been hard to open to even happiness. This poem is called The Day Millicent Found the World, and it's by William Stafford. Every morning, Millicent ventured farther into the woods. At first, she stayed near light, the edge where bushes grew, where her way back appeared in glimpses among dark trunks behind her. Then by farther paths or openings where giant pines had fallen, she explored ever deeper into the interior. Till one day she stood under a great dome among columns, the heart of the forest, and knew, I'm lost. She had achieved a mysterious world where any direction would yield only surprise. And now, not only the giant trees were strange, but the ground at her feet had a velvet nearness. Intricate lines on bark wove messages all around. Long strokes of golden sunlight shifted over her feet and hands. She felt caught up and breathing in a great powerful embrace. A bird call wandered forth at leisurely intervals. Come away, come away. Never before had she let herself realize that she was part of the world and that it could follow wherever she went. She was part of its breath. Aunt Dolby called her back that time, a high voice tapering faintly. Millicent, Millicent. And that time she returned, but slowly, her feet stirring up the dark smell of moss, her face floating forward, a new face now with a new depth in it into the light. And this is how we go in the interior of our hearts. It's not so familiar. We sometimes feel lost. But bit by bit, we get to know the terrain. And bit by bit, it gets to be familiar. And we develop so many strengths by doing this, by going into the interior of our hearts, by knowing it just as it is, without pushing away, without running towards something more pleasant. Along the way of our practice, so many spiritual strengths develop, and we usually don't recognize them. We get so caught up in the hard bits of our practice. We don't recognize them so much in retreat, but I bet many of you, myself included, going home, I realize some of these strengths, more confidence in ourselves, more spaciousness of mind, just not getting so hung up on things as much. Maybe if we look back a year, we can't see it. 
maybe five years, a little bit, the Dalai Lama was asked, have you made any progress in your practice? And he said, well, looking back one year, hmm, not so much. Five years, maybe, a little bit. Ten years, hmm, yeah. Twenty years, yeah, can see a difference. And I think we're so in a hurry here in the West. You know, we don't give ourselves a lot of time. I was talking to Patricia yesterday, and she was telling me about her training with Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, a very high Tibetan master. And he always said, not to hurry, that it would take 25 years. 25 years. Maybe not, but for some of us, it has. I know a lot of times I go home and I think in retreat, oh, I just could have done better, I should have done better. And I go home and then I see the fruits of my practice. Or maybe I see it in the next retreat. Somehow I feel more honest with myself. Somehow I feel more transparent, authentic. Often in retreat we give ourselves such a hard time I do it too. I should be better. I should do more. I could do better. I could have done more. In my own family with an Asian background, this is a good quality, you know, when you say, I could be better, I could do more. And so this is kind of inculcated in our genes. But really it's torture inside to feel this, isn't it? It's just another layer of conditioning that we all have to be able to see through, in a way. Over the years, after doing retreats and then going home, and even after the after-retreat bliss wears off, (laughs) there have been quite a few times, and one more recently that I remember uh, with my own children, and they have given me feedback about my being more mellow. Um, (laughs) I know a lot of you see me and say, oh, she's so gentle and spacious and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? (laughs) I am not always this way behind the scenes. (laughs) All you have to do is ask this person on my left. And Joseph gets to see a little bit of it, too. But having to raise four children and some of that time being a single parent, I had to be a warrior sometimes. It, it was, I had to be really strict. And I had to keep things together. And so I wasn't mellow when I was raising the kids. I was like right on their ass if they didn't do the dishes. <laughs> So now, you know, I just remember them saying things like, hey, mom, you're really mellow, you know, like after dinner. You're kind of hang loose, you know. (laughs) Hang loose is like, that's our kind of state motto, hang loose. In Hawaii, we have this sign like this, you know. We give it to each other on the streets. Even the newscasters do it, you know, after the newscast. We go like this. And it means just 
be mellow, hang loose, don't get so uptight about things. And so my kids say to me, Mom, you're pretty hang loose these days. That Buddha stuff is really good. (laughs) (laughs) They have a a sweet name for me sometimes. Um, In Hawaii, we kind of kid about each other's religions or ethnic background. There is absolutely no political correctness in Hawaii. And I've had to learn a lot, um, you know, teaching here on the mainland. So they call me, as they call all people of Buddhist um, inclinations, they call me Buddha head sometimes. <laughs> but it's, a, it's an endearment. When we don't have this kind of... <laughs> But you don't have to call me Buddha head, please. (laughs) It could be like a really bad political incorrectness here. I didn't know anything about political incorrectness. I remember one time somebody, just to segue into something else, I was here just teaching with Joseph and somebody, and then somebody in the audience said, oh, we're so glad there's a person of color up there. And I said, well, I said, well, thank you, you know. And we laughed, and I walked back, and I turned to one of the other teachers, and I said, do I dress too colorfully? (laughs) (laughs) I just... (laughs) I had no... I just have no idea. I still don't... I still don't say the right thing. (laughs) but this place whatever it is of I don't do it right I can do better I should do better I could do better there was an old thing you know during the Ram Dass times he used to say don't shoot upon me But (laughs) but we do that a lot to ourselves You know, maybe we don't do it to others, but we do it to ourselves. There's another poem. I've been hanging out with this William Stafford book, so I've got plenty of poems tonight from William Stafford. There's this weight about having this. I should do, I could do, and it's so heavy to carry. This poem is called, It's Heavy to Drag This Sack. It's heavy to drag this sack of what you should have done, and finally you can't lift it anymore. Someone says, come on, and you just look at them. (laughs) Trees are waiting, mountains. You never intended that it would come to this. But now has arrived and is looking straight at you the way a lion does when thinking it over and and anything can happen. So drop the sack. That conditioning is not so easy to drop, really. But it's just seeing that that's the conditioning. Sometimes I would say, oh, there it is, the I should have done mind. I could have done mind. The simple recognition of it, and it doesn't stick. 
Maybe for some bits we can drop those sacks of conditioning and recognize clearly. And when we can, what reveals, what gets reveals, revealed to us are a lot of very beautiful states of mind, qualities that are developed and established as we do our practice of mindfulness. Qualities that we may find ourselves more coming home to over and over again. And I think that's what happens a lot in our practice. When we don't have to carry that sack around so much, we get to see those beautiful qualities more clearly. And we can rest in them. We can reside, reside in them. We can live from that place a little more. And then we can begin to feel a lot more at home with ourselves. These qualities are called sobhana, the beautiful factors of mind. And they're aroused in every moment of mindfulness. Sometimes sobhana is translated into beautiful, shining, radiant, radiant splendor. Steve told me earlier that, in fact, before Mahasi Sayadaw, our um, great teacher, got his name, his name was Usobana. Radiant, shining, splendor, qualities of mind. So I just wanted to go over a few, and this serves in a way as a review and a way to just begin to recognize in a very honest way about our, these qualities that are there. The first and foremost quality is mindfulness. In the Dhammapada it said, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. Another word for mindfulness is non-negligence. There's a word in Pali, apamada. And I think some of you were at that two-month retreat where the whole retreat was about apamada, about non-negligence. All the Dharma talks by Upandita were about this. When someone has a quality of awareness about them, you know, when we think, oh, that person is really aware. we see that that person is not only beautifully minded, it's not only the quality of awareness and that beautiful awareness that we sense about this person, but it's also mindfulness of what's going on in and around that person that we sense there's a very deep awareness that this person carries. You get a sense that it's a quality that that person is participating in life and at the same time very mindful of what's going on. Walking when walking, talking when talking, knowing that that's happening, sensing every sense door, but at the same time knowing the big picture and being able to hold it in a compassionate way. This kind of participatory awareness is the middle ground between being totally absorbed and in some kind of indulgence or identification with what's going on. And the other side of that is blind denial. So it's some kind of middle ground, 
mindfulness, the middle path, really. Mindfulness, will we come to see, allows for this full recognition in a very objective way of what's going on, a clear recognition, and yet at the same time fully feeling what's happening. It's not kind of a dull being away from, but it's a fully being within and noticing from within what's happening in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. Someone in retreat not so long ago told me, she said, I feel so childlike, seeing everything from this kind of new place from within, and yet seeing it with more wisdom. It was a very delightful place for her to feel her body in that intimate way, very closely sensing what's happening at all sense doors and yet not being caught up with it. It seems like when mindfulness is developed, all our sense doors get cleared and we experience seeing. We see colors we've never seen before. We hear things we've never heard before, far away, sounds of birds, of the rustling, of snow falling, even. We smell things. I remember being here once uh, some time ago, and in my room in the annex, I smelled popcorn in the kitchen. And um, I know for sure it was from the kitchen, and it was popcorn because I followed mindfully the smell. Um, (laughs) Mindfully noticing, wanting, wanting, hoping that maybe they were putting something out you know, um, for people. It's a feeling of being really alive to life, being really awake to life, not through ways that I think it should be or ways pushing away I don't want it to be, but to just how it is. And yet there's this quality of wisdom. Wisdom is another sobana, another beautiful factor of mindfulness mindfulness. We come to see every experience in this light of wisdom. We've talked about it a lot, seeing every experience through the wisdom of the transparency of it, the corelessness of it, the ever-changing nature of it, empty, moving always, no place to provide any lasting happiness. And that's how it is. And that's how it is. And with wisdom, we learn to live in alignment with how we see how it is instead of fighting it all along the way. Wisdom is not just seeing how it is, but it's living in alignment then with a new way of seeing things. So we carry that into our lives, and it wakes us up more and more and more. We come to see not only that, but the wisdom of knowing that our actions and our words have an effect in this world, the wisdom of knowing the truth of karma. And out of that wisdom and compassion, we know, even though it's coreless and empty and changing all the time, 
we must be very careful because what we do, what we say, not only affects others, but it affects ourselves as well. As Padmasambhava says, though my view is as vast as space, my attention to the laws of cause and effect are as fine as barley flour. So not only because our words and actions can harm others, but because they have an effect on our own lives. Another quality, apart from wisdom and mindfulness, is modesty. That's not a word we often hear in terms of qualities, beautiful qualities of mind and heart. What is that? It's a kind of unpretentiousness. When I looked it up in the dictionary, my, this uh, word was modesty, unpretentiousness. We're all very complex beings, as we know, from practicing and seeing clearly into our hearts and minds. And in the practice, because we do that, we come to know ourselves. And we come to know what we genuinely understand, and we stand by the truth of that. And we also come to know what we don't understand yet. And so we're modest about our knowledge and don't pretend that we know more than we know. We don't overestimate ourselves, nor do we underestimate ourselves. We have a sense of modesty about our understanding, about our abilities, without putting ourselves down. It's hard to do this. You know, I find that um, I tend to put myself down more. I tend to be not in this middle ground, but to underestimate myself more than I need to. People around a modest person sense their authenticity because we can be, one can be really um, sure of what one knows and sure of what one doesn't know, sure of feeling at home in ourselves. In the dictionary, it says also freedom from conceit or vanity. So modesty manifests our true character in the world. We don't have to be pretentious. There was one time I attended um, uh, the Dalai Lama's teachings on Rigpa in San Jose in 1989, the time when his Nobel Prize was announced during that very teaching. And it was a wonderful time. Many Dharma friends were there. And um, so he was giving the teachings. And it was very beautiful and a lot of chanting, the Tibetan chanting, which I love. And so here he was just in the middle of the chanting and he was doing his, um, um, and I don't mean to be, not honor it, but the way it goes, the way my ear hears it is and all the Tibetan chanting. And here he was doing this chant and all of a sudden he had to go to the bathroom. So he, meant, he just mentioned to this crowd of thousands, he said, he just stopped and he said, anybody bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so he was talking to his people around him and he said, yes, bathroom? And, and people said, okay, okay. And so we just stopped in the middle 
And he got up, and everybody got up and went to the bathroom. <laughs> Just, <laughs> it was totally authentic. It totally transparent. I felt totally at ease with him. It was, it was just like I was sitting there with my uncle in the room. <laughs> so that's a modesty, this genuineness of character that comes out. And then there's rectitude, straightness of mind, a commitment to walking our talk, Rectitude, I, I remember the word in Pali, I think I'm remembering it right, ujukata, that sounds like, like really clear, like really straight. We cannot hide from one's own unwholesome acts or wrongdoing. This is rectitude of mind. And this becomes very aroused in our practice of mindfulness. It kind of hits all those rooms where we've closed the door for a long, long time and lets us face whatever's in there. Not easy to face sometimes. It's the inability to be devious or untruthful or cunning. It's not just untruthfulness, but it's the, the seeing of it so clearly, you know, when it begins to arise. And... Um, we begin to develop the courage to admit that in oneself. When I was uh, first practicing with Upandita, he said that you must be not just um, truthful but precise about your reporting your experience. And there was this particular way of reporting that allowed us to be precise, which I really appreciate. And... Um, and you couldn't go into any kind of story. You just had to say what you were experiencing at a level of direct experience. And you had to say how long you sat and how long you walked. And so during the beginning times, we were in little group interviews. And people were saying, Oh, Bhante, oh, Venerable Sir, I have been sitting long time uh, this was in Australia, and I've been walking long time and many hours of the day not sleeping very much. And um, I'm able to be present with many, many breaths, you know, like a lot, <laughs> five minutes of it or whatever it was. And I thought, I was sitting there and I thought to myself, wow, those yogis are really good. And I'm so far behind, and I, I'm just a beginner here. And um, then Sayadaw just listened, and uh, then pretty soon as we were walking outside and as we were sitting, people were coming by that were close to Sayadaw and noticing what exactly were we doing. Were we really sitting all day and night, walking all day and night? And so I guess he got the word that that wasn't exactly true. So in the next Dharma talk, he said that if you want to really know the truth, you have to say the truth and say it exactly how it is, precisely, and not say anything that's not uh, precise. And so he said, I would like everybody 
that hasn't been precise in their reporting to come to me, uh, to come to my room, and to let me know that that has been the case, and to ask for forgiveness. Wow. I was like shaking in my boots. But I could see that what he was trying to encourage was this kind of rectitude of mind, to be able to look deeply and to say, is this really the truth? Is this really wholesome, to bend the truth a little bit that way, to embellish it, to leave out? I really checked myself, and fortunately I hadn't reported too many times yet, So I didn't have to go to the door and ask for forgiveness. But it really made me look very closely at what the mind is doing to have this commitment to rectitude, to straightness of mind. So that's rectitude. And then there is confidence. There is this kind of self-assurance in the good sense of the way. Not a prideful, strident way, but a way in which we understand ourselves, our practice. We have this confidence to go to that moment's experience and bring a very close touching of awareness there. Every time mindfulness can actually do that, then confidence is developed more and more. In our practice, it's more like this moment-to-moment confidence where we know the inner terrain. But then that translates into our life later on, where we go out in life and we just have this kind of confidence about ourselves. We have this confidence because we know we're telling ourselves the truth about how it is. Not too much, not too little, not going overboard. It's just seeing things very clearly. And so we have this confidence to move on in our lives and to follow a very clear path for ourselves. We saw a movie in Australia um, produced there, and parts of the movie were played by the Aboriginal people. And many of them weren't actors, actresses, and they played these very... um, these parts that were so genuine. And the name of the movie, Rabbit Proof Fence, that's the name of it. It might have been Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence, but Rabbit Proof Fence. It's about these three little Aborigine girls. They were the ages about 8, 9, and 14, something like that. They were taken away from one, I think from the north, Uh, of Australia, very north. They were taken away from their mother and their family. And they were brought to a place 1,200 miles away in the south to a place where they were to learn how to be household help. In the middle of the um, country of, of, of Australia, there is this what is called rabbit-proof fence that divides the country almost in half. And they put the fence up, I believe, because there was this kind of infestation of rabbits on the east side, and they wanted to prevent the rabbits from going west. 
So this huge, long, over 1,200-mile fence was built. Can you imagine? While the girls lived near this fence on the north side, they lived in a desolate part of the country. And when they got to the south, they saw this fence. So they followed the fence 1,200 miles by foot to find their mother again. A true story. A true story. They used the fence as a guide, and they followed it home. Only two of them made it. When they got home, they were reapprehended, and they were taken back to that place. And now, this time, there were three of them because the older one had a child. And they escaped again. And they walked home again with the child, 1,200 miles to the north, back to their family. It was an incredibly inspiring story to see these. They show the two older women at the end. And um, they were just as lighthearted as could be, at least from my point of view. A lot of confidence, a lot of courage it took to do that. Across the outback, not debilitated, not daunted by the desolate terrain that could be outside or inside. The harshness of what we can go through in that kind of a journey. Confidence is a life-giving thread. Find that thread in your own hearts. Let that thread guide you. This is another poem by William Stafford, and the name of the poem is The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So that's confidence. Conscience is another one, another beautiful quality, another sobhana. Conscience, in, in this Buddhist perspective, Dharma perspective, is sensitivity for the well-being of others, a deep sensitivity for the well-being of others. It's by recognizing and respecting others' well-being. We form a sense of community that way when we recognize and we respect others' well-being. And when we're in that community, we also want to have that respect from others. So if there's a thought to do something that's against the community's uh, alignment, 
we feel inside, no, this isn't good. It's a, a little bit of shame in the good sense of the word. A little bit of like, oh, this isn't the right thing to do. Because we want to be respected. We want to be worthy of respect. And there's an inner reminder to us. Sometimes it comes as like, for me, it comes as an inside like, ouch, you know, I, I'm going to hurt myself if I keep going in that direction. When we have that sense of conscience, we feel more at home with ourselves. We feel more at home with others. So that's conscience, another beautiful quality. Other ones along the way are generosity, which Marcia spoke of. this kind of generosity that doesn't expect anything in return. Why is this so important in our lives? The Buddha called it the first pillar of the Dharma because it's the beginning of the development of letting go. The more we practice letting go, the happier we are. We're happy when we are generous. Just check, check in on that. When we're happy, we're more concentrated. When we're more concentrated, it supports mindfulness. When mindfulness is there, it brings out this wisdom. When wisdom is there, we're liberated. It brings us to the deepest peace. Achan Shah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. And it all starts with generosity. That's why it's so important. Loving kindness. We talked about that a lot, an appreciation of life, that realization that my life is more connected than I can possibly ever imagine to every being and to everything in this world and beyond, maybe. So this opens the heart, this connects, this opens to what the Dalai Lama calls this immeasurable impartiality. And so we feel at home in the web of life. So all of these qualities and more are there within our very being, within this very heart and mind. They're not as apparent as the difficult ones, not as apparent as the gross ones. It's also important to be mindful of them, these beautiful qualities of mind and heart, and to truly come home to ourselves. We really do ourselves a disservice when we don't recognize these beautiful qualities.
when we recognize these beautiful qualities, the truth of life comes to us more. The opening to that peace that doesn't depend on anything in this life that is beyond. There's a possibility for that to come. It's so important to recognize the beautiful qualities. I'd like to end with this poem, a Kashmiri woman by the name of Laldet. She lived in the 14th century. I was passionate, filled with longing. I searched far and wide. But the day that the truthful one found me, I was at home. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.